A question I've had a lot during this time is, what should we do? Or, or what should I do? And I know that they're just trying to help, but it seems like every time a governing authority, someone with authority or in charge says something or gives some advice about what we're supposed to be doing, I, I get more confused. Some of the advice seems kind of contradictory. We're not supposed to store up food, but we're not supposed to shop very often. We're supposed to exercise, but we can't do it in a park or a public place. And sometimes we're very confused about what it is exactly I'm supposed to be doing. Now, those people who are in charge need prayer. They're doing their best that they can, given the circumstances. But the question still remains, what are we supposed to do? And in a time of confusion and in this time of a pandemic, it's going to seem like people are making different choices. And you know what? People are going to respond differently to what's happening then you may. Every person's going to respond a little bit differently. Even people who are Christians or people we get along with are our own family. And, you know, that's okay if people respond differently. Because it is confusing and there are no clear answers about what we should do or shouldn't do. But when it comes to living for God, we do have answers. Last week, if you tuned into our message, we were studying Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11, and included this wonderful section talking about what Jesus Christ did. The Apostle Paul was writing, and he said, "...to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He was in the form of God, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself." by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ did that. He became human. He died on a cross on our behalf. And then it said, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Okay, so if that's what Christ did, he became human, he died on a cross, well, how should we live? We're told God, therefore, highly exalted him, but therefore, what? What are we supposed to do? We were told to practice this mind of Christ. We talked about what that was last week, but how should we do it? What does it look like in our lives? Well, our text today is going to answer that question. One Christian scholar, J.A. Motyer, put it this way. He said, Christ-likeness is the Christian's greatest concern. Being like Jesus should be the greatest concern of a follower of Christ. And here, the passage we're looking at today, here is the procedure for attaining it. So the short answer is, what are we supposed to do? Well, we are to be working, and we are to be lights. The title this week kind of combines that together, Working Lights. If you want an outline of this message, you can find one on our website, again, eshorebaptist.org. If you look on the main page, you should see a link where you can download the outline. I also send it out in a weekly email, and you can sign up for those emails on the website as well. So working lights, and it's very important that we have lights that work. You can have the most beautiful chandelier that anyone has ever seen, but if there's no power running to it, if the lights don't work, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good in the dark. Remember, we're studying Paul's letter to the Philippians. He's writing to a church in Philippi where he's many miles away in Rome. But even still, he tells them that they can rejoice together and they can grow together. 
And we're going to see both of those things in our text today. So let's read our text. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we have in your word today. I pray, God, that you will help us see how We are to work. We are to work out our salvation. And we are to shine as lights in the world. Remind us, though, that we can only do this because you are the one who works in us. Lord, I pray that you will guide us in this time of studying your word. May you apply it to our lives. May we live more for you every day as we rejoice together and grow to be more like you. Thank you for being with us. And may you be our focus right now. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. So Paul begins in verse 12 by saying, therefore, therefore, what he's just said because of who Jesus is, therefore, what should we do? Well, we should work. We should work. Listen again to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Philippians should continue obeying God by faithfully working. And Paul says this because he cares for them. They are his beloved, his dear friends. They obeyed Paul when he was with them, and they should continue to do that in his absence. Now remember, these words here, are for believers. They're for people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to a church. And so when he says, work out your own salvation, he's not telling us how we can be saved. He's not telling us how we can have a relationship with God. No, work out your salvation means that we're growing in our experience of every aspect and blessing of salvation. It's similar to how sometimes if a couple's struggling, we tell them or they're this, it's, we say that they are working on their marriage. That couple's working on their marriage. It's really kind of the same concept here. The New Living Translation puts it this way, work hard to show the results of your salvation. We're talking about areas that need to be explored, developed, 
and improved. That's what we mean. It's not that we're not saved. It means that we're developing, we're working, we're exploring, we're understanding more of what it means to have salvation. One scholar, Sean McDonough, put it this way about the Philippians. They cannot be content with past glories. They need to demonstrate their faith day by day as they nurture their relationship with God. Like a tree or a plant, we need to take care of our relationship. Our relationship with God needs to grow. It's something we have to work at. We have to be intentional about this. And what we're talking about is developing our character. Developing our character, becoming more of a Christ follower. It won't just happen. It's something we need to work at. We need to commit to practicing a godly character. We do this because we're obeying God, we're obedient to Him, but we also have a responsibility before Him, and we're sensitive to who God is. The very last words of verse 12 are, with fear and trembling. It means we have a proper view of God. We recognize our weakness, we can't do this on our own, but recognizing God's greatness, who He is. That idea of fear, it's not so much being afraid like of a scary movie or something like that. It's more recognizing God and going, wow, I am not like him. When we look at our lives, we see sin in our lives. And we realize that we may be many things, but we're not God. And if we're going to have fear and trembling, a deep reverence for God, we'll realize he does not, he's not pleased with sin. Sin offends him. And we want to please God with our lives, not because we have to earn favor with Him, but because we love Him. He's changed us. And so when we see that, we're, we want to work out our salvation. We want to work in our lives to continually fight against our sin nature. We'll not be condemned for our sin, but when this life is over, we will be before the judgment seat of God. And so we use this life to put to put to death, get rid of every part of us that is not pleasing to our Lord. We're working on our character. Kind of how a statue is chiseled from a block of marble. It's one block of stone that's slowly chiseled away. The wrong is taken off to leave the master's handiwork. And so this is a reminder to us that we cannot really share with others, we cannot really tell others about God if we ourselves are not growing. So let's ask ourselves, are we growing to be more like Christ? Do we need to start working on ourselves and on our characters so that we can grow? I really like the Christian classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. This book is a reminder to us that the Christian life is a journey. We've not yet arrived. We have work to do. We have growth that we still need to have in this life. We're not saved and then we're done. God is still doing a work in us. And we work on ourselves so that we can shine. So that we can shine. Listen to verses 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And we'll stop there because we're going to talk about two sides of shining. And the first part we're going to talk about is how do we shine? How do we shine? 
Verse 13, which is a verse we'll talk about a bit more later, tells us God works in us, but we still have a responsibility to obey what He has said. And verse 14 says that we're to do this without grumbling, complaining, without disputing, questioning, or arguing. We're to do this without outward or inward objections to what God has called us to do. We're not to say to God that we don't like this. We're not to think that we have a problem with what God is doing. And the truth is, we all have a temptation to complain about God's work. Just think about right now. God, why are we in this pandemic thing? God, why can't we come to church? God, why can't get together with family and friends? We can also, though, complain about what God is doing through other people. God, why did that happen to that person and it didn't happen to me? Instead, we're to contend for the faith together. We're not to dispute with one another over details. Sometimes as Christians, we study God's Word so well, but we're sometimes tempted to get upset about the tiniest detail, the smallest disagreement that we have with someone. And when we do that, we often miss the work that God wants to do in our lives. Truth is important, but we're to be united together in pursuing Christ. The Old Testament Israelites were led aside by this. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul describes what happened. He's telling his audience to not grumble as some of them, as some of those Israelites did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This idea of grumbling, disputing, causing arguments and contention We might think we're coming for a good place, that we're standing up for for what's right. And we absolutely should stand up for what's right when the truth is denied. But often when we go into this side of grumbling or disputing, more often than not, it's really coming from our self-centeredness. It comes from our idea that the world revolves around us, that we're always right and that everyone else is always wrong. But believers in Jesus are to be defined by sacrificial love. They sacrifice their interests, their rights, so that they can care for and love others. Or to put it another way, in the words of verse 15, that we may be blameless and innocent, harmless, pure, children of God without blemish. In other words, we are to be above reproach. We're to have a clear conscience. We're to be without evil. We're not to criticize others, and we ourselves are to be above criticism, at least as far as it depends on us. We are to live clean, innocent, pure lives. And why do we do this? Well, because we are children of God, is what our text says. In the book of Ephesians, Paul put it this way, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And we are God's children. So that means we should live differently. If we have a relationship with God, if we are his child, our life should look different. Our outward display will reflect the inner nature, the change that happened when God saved us. And what does this look like? Well, that's the main point of what we're talking about today. We will be shining lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights 
in the world. A light doesn't decide to shine. It just does. It's what a light is. Lights shine. And so should we. This seems like it's a reference to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. In Old Testament prophecy, and the prophet wrote this, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, they will shine like the stars forever and ever. Living for God means that we shine like stars in the night sky. We shine before unbelievers, as it says here, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, twisted, warped, perverse generation or people. We shine before those who do not know Jesus. And Jesus himself talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about these verses when we were still meeting together. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus says to Christians, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lights are meant to be seen. They should not be hidden. If we are a follower of Christ, our different lives will be noticed. Now, I'm not talking about that we're seeking glory or recognition and people to see what we're doing. No, I'm talking about how we live our faith in every circumstance that we encounter. The Apostle Peter was listening when Jesus said that passage we just read, and he grasped this point. In his own book, he writes this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who do not know God, keep your conduct among them honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to draw people to God by our lives. If we are Christians, that means every aspect of our life should be different. And really, it should be better. How we work, how we love, how we talk, think, and act. If your faith doesn't have an impact on your life, on every single thing you do, then you're either doing it wrong or you don't have faith. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon put it this way, a Christian man should so shine in his life that a person could not live with him a week without knowing the gospel. His conversations should be such that all who are about him should clearly perceive whose he is and whom he serves and should see the image of Jesus reflected in his daily actions. The reason we have a light is not so much to draw attention to itself. Ooh, what a pretty light, what a pretty lamp, what a pretty light bulb that is. No, it's to show light on something else. Right now I'm talking with lights here in this church sanctuary shining on me so that you can see me clearly. In our lives, we do the same thing. Our light is not so people see us. It's so we can then shine and say, here is Jesus. Here he is. Look at him. See him. We do that for unbelievers who don't know him, but we may have to do that for people who are in the church as well. 
After all, that phrase, crooked and twisted generation, it can also refer to those who claim to know God. In fact, those words actually come from a place in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. Talking about Israelites, it says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. We need to show professed Christians sometimes what it looks like to follow Jesus. And if they are genuine Christians, well, then they should be inspired by our example to live for him. Or we may expose that they didn't know Jesus in the first place. True believers are lights. They live in the midst of those opposed to God. But our fight is not against them. No, our fight is against the powers behind them that keep them enslaved to their sin. We're not fighting them. We are showing them the light. And what happens when we do this? Well, the result of shining is joy. Joy. Let me read verses 16 through 18. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is pointing out that his work, everything he's done for the Philippians would be in vain if they did not shine, if they did not cling to faith in God. That's what it means to hold fast to the word of life. Believers' faithfulness, their perseverance, that was a great, very great concern for Paul. He mentions it multiple times in his letters. For example, in the book of Galatians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. But on the other hand, if he is faithful and the people he's working with are faithful, well, they can rejoice. They can be proud. They can boast together. As he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 14, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. He also says in 1 Thessalonians, for what is our hope or joy, there's that word, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? The great works we do? No, he says, is it not you? For you, the Christians that I work with, you are our glory and joy. Well, in our passage, then what, what does Paul want them to do so he can have this joy? Well, he wants them to hold fast or hold firm to the word of life. He wants them to believe God's word, to follow it. Now, some translations have that phrase as holding forth, meaning proclaiming God's word, helping others to understand the Bible. And both are true, though. God holds us, but we cling to him and we show him to others. But we can't do that. We can't hold to God and we can't tell others about Him without His Word. We cannot live for God without this Word of life. And that's why it's so important that we spend time in the Bible, that we can know God better, share Him better with others, but also so He can work in us and we can better cling to Him in whatever situation comes our way. Again, Paul is saying this because he wants to be proud of how he has run the race of his life. He uses a lot of illustrations about races, running, athletes, often in his books to explain the Christian life. 
And he does this because he wants the Philippians to live in anticipation of Christ's return. As he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud. I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He writes about this in another place in 1 Thessalonians. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. When we hold close to Christ, we anticipate, look forward to his return, and so we cling closer to him through his word. That proves that we are genuine believers in Jesus. In fact, that's the only way we can know for sure if we are clinging close to him. If our reaction to trouble is that we cling closer to God, we depend more on him, well, well, then we can be confident that we know him. Now, that doesn't mean we never struggle. We never wonder, God, what are you doing? It doesn't mean we're never upset about something that happens in our life. But when we're upset, when we struggle, do we run toward God or away from him? If we run toward him, then in every situation we can be confident that he knows us. And if the Philippians do this, if they cling close to God, if they hold fast to his word, as they're holding it forth, telling it to others, it will bring Paul joy. He says, I'm glad. Rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. But before that, he compares himself to a drink offering. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. When someone was offering an animal, whether it was in the Old Testament times, or whether it was someone in the Greco or Roman culture of Paul's day, they would put their animal sacrifice on the altar and then they would pour wine over it to kind of add an extra blessing to it. The Old Testament, we read about this in the book of Numbers, chapter 28. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. So in this passage, Paul is saying that his life was poured out. His life was expended in God's service. He gave everything he had. And why did he do this? Well, he was pouring himself into the Philippians. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. He poured into them so that they would be an acceptable sacrifice to God. He invested in them so they could serve God. The effectiveness of his life was in how the churches that he worked with, how they were serving God. Paul didn't look at his own works and say, I've done all these great things. What a great offering for God. No, he saw himself as investing in the other churches. And it would be what they did that would bring God more glory than even he can do by himself. And he's confident in the Philippians, knowing that brings him joy. I'm glad I rejoice with you all. As he writes in the book of 2 Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And that is why he wants the Philippians to rejoice with him. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Living for God gave him joy. 
hearing about other believers who are living for the Lord more and more, doing things for Him, that should give us joy. Our life is to be a sacrifice for our Lord and Savior. And that's not a burden that gives us great joy to live for the God who has done so much for us. So, how are we to respond? How are we to live? What are we to do? Well, we're to work and we're to shine as lights. But if we're really honest, that that seems kind of overwhelming. All this work, all this shining we're doing, it may feel impossible to live this way. And that's why in the middle of our passage, Paul gave the Philippians great encouragement. He told them to remember who is really working. Remember who is really working. Listen to verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The work we do is a result of God's work in us. He energizes, empowers our work and our shining. He is tirelessly active in us. His work is effective. It accomplishes His purposes. He does His work with our will. He gives us a desire to serve God. That comes from Him. We don't have to come up with a desire to serve God. He gives it to us. And then also to work, to act, to do. God works in us, so we choose to live for Him. We cannot desire to live for God, and we cannot do it. We cannot live for God without Him first working in us. Which brings us to a very key question. Is God working in you? The only way He's working in you is if you have a relationship with Him. You cannot live for God or please Him on your own. On your own, all you do is you sin, you rebel, you do things that are against God. And that has separated you from Him in this life, and if nothing changes for all eternity. And when Christ returns, you will be apart from Him. But that's why God sent Jesus to earth in the first place. He lived a perfect life. He worked and did the works that God desired. He shone forth God's truth and God's light in everything that he did. But he died. He was put to death even though he was innocent. And since he did that, he paid the penalty. What we owed to God, what our rebellion cost God, Christ paid for that. So now if we turn away from our sin and we have faith in Jesus, if we trust in Jesus and nothing else, and we can be restored to a right relationship with God. Then it can be said of us that God is working in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. We can live for God if we have a relationship with Him. So I encourage you to reach out and talk to someone if you do not think you have a relationship with God. Talk to someone who, has, uh, who is a genuine Christian, or you can reach out to me at jtune at eshorebaptist.org, and I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about what it means to know Jesus Christ, what it means to have God working in us. But the reason Paul wrote this was for believers. Believers need this too. If someone knows Jesus Christ, then God works in us. He's always molding us. He is shaping us. 
and he will never run out of energy. He will always be there to support and encourage us. And we're told why he does this. He does this for his good pleasure. God works in us because he wants to, because he loves us. It brings him joy. J.A. Motyer said, this is really no explanation, and yet it is the greatest of all explanations. For it means that though the reason is hidden from us, it is a reason which makes sense to him. He will never give us up. And this God who works in us because he wants to is the same God who was at work in the Apostle Paul. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul was working hard, working out his salvation, but he still recognized that it's really God who was working in him to accomplish everything he did. And so now he wants the Philippians to know that God's love, his enabling grace will see them through whatever they are going through. And friends, even in this time of pandemic where we are separated, it will see us through as well. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them, who is working in them all, in everyone. Remember what even we were told to do in our passage. In verse 15, we're to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. How can we do that? How can we live in that way? Well, the book of Jude tells us, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Who is the only one who can do this? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now in all of this, it doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. Remember verse 12, we are to work out our own salvation. We're to develop our character, seek to grow, become more like Christ. But we're only able to do that because it is God who works in us. Again, Sean McDonough explains how, what the Philippians should do. They can rejoice in God's empowering presence, even as they work hard at living responsible Christian lives. You know, as I think about this, it reminds me of the theme we're talking about here in Philippians, the title of this sermon series. The book of Philippians is about rejoicing and growing. That we do when we're together, when we're far apart, we can always rejoice and grow. Do you see both of those in this text? I mean, the rejoicing, Paul says it. I'm glad. I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad. Rejoice with me. But that growing is there in how we're working out our own salvation, which means that we're shining like lights in the world. We're holding fast to God's Word. 
When we do that, we grow, we work. And as we do that, we can rejoice. Do you see both of those there? Do you live both of those? Or to put it another way, with the title of this sermon, Are You a Working Light? I would like to end our time today by a time of prayer. And in that prayer, I'm going to pray a passage that kind of talks about God's work in us. This is Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we've had in your word and the challenge to work and to shine. Thank you that you are the one who works in us. And God, I pray that you, the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, you, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, God, I pray that you will equip us with everything good so that we may do your will. God, may you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.